Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Toby, here we are. Here we are indeed. Episode one of the relaunched Moments of Clarity. It's yeah. a pleasure to be here. Hello, everyone. You know, today we've got a really great guest coming up. We've got Fatty Kassab, a comedian from Sydney, was here for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and has some shows coming up over in Sydney. We're going to have a great chat with him and we'll bring that to you soon. But before we do, there's a few things that we want to catch up on. Yeah, I mean, talking of comedians, they've uh, called a federal election here in Australia. It, it, there's a lot of, um, I would say, humorous moments. If it wasn't so important, potentially it would be very funny. But uh, yeah. I'm, Do you, I'm, is, it, <laughs> is it, you know, without wanting to get into genre things too quickly, is it tragic comedy? Well, it's a, there's definitely a lot of tragic moments going on. For, for me, um, <laughs> conversations I'm having with people, listening to the news, it just, it just seems that nothing ever changes. We're, we're down the same path as we always are in an election campaign, which is negativity and gotcha moments and, uh, and, and attacks and, and grabbing random, um, just headline-grabbing things just to distract from the real issues, I find, which enrages me and disgusts me as a uh, someone that's interested in politics and thinks, you know, there's... There's actually good that can come out of it if we uh, we allow it to. Unfortunately, it is a fundamental system within our society. When I say unfortunately, I don't actually mean unfortunately. I mean, unfortunately, it's such an important system that does get derailed and reduced to some uh, combination of trivia and nastiness in a... Uh, an area that actually should be is so fundamental to the way that we as people across Australia and, and frankly beyond have a role in the world. I'm not sure if it's worse now than it was. It feels it. It, it feels like we have, amongst Western democracies on the whole, a less inspiring set of leaders than we've had in a number of decades. But I don't know if every generation is programmed to feel that way. Yeah, and I think it comes down to 24-hour news cycles and social media blowing things up and, and there's a commentary around every single soundbite, whereas maybe once upon a time there were, you know, you've got your five minutes that's going to be shown on the 6 o'clock news and, and there you go, or, or a speech at a local town hall or something rather than this minute-by-minute minute update. You know, yeah. there's live blogs about each day. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, it's an yeah. amazing process. And I, I've spoken to you before, Matt, about... Uh, one of my other projects that we'll bring into the show at some point around the irony age, uh, which is around this idea that you know we live in a world of all these perversities and irony. And so it's really strange that with all of these tools, the social media platforms, etc., that we're meant to bring insight and honesty to the world, that actually people don't care. So there are more lies that seem to be being propagated as a result of the 24-hour news cycle and the fact you can check what people actually said but people don't and that's really, I think, corrupting not just politics but kind of our society, our societal life. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I read um, Stolen Focus by Johan Hari uh, who, who spoke or speaks about in that book about the the lack of attention in our society today and that there's more information than ever, you know, a bit like this irony age, you know, there's more knowledge, more wisdom, apparently more information, yet we seem less equipped than ever to, to deal with our daily existence and each other. Or maybe that's just the way we're meant to feel, which is just as bad to, to you know, our perspective is often more important than, than reality sometimes. So, yeah, we're, we're in, a, in a tough space. So I'd love to explore that topic with you further as well. Too often perception is reality and mm. becomes reality. And I think I think the other thing about that fits with what you're talking about with Johan Hari's work, one of the reasons that focus is so important and why it's so difficult is actually we do have so much information. And and so there is a real skill required to be able to sift through it uh, or choose your sources wisely. Uh, and I think that's also part of the challenge of now. We have more insight than ever before, but whether or not you land on the sensible insight is another matter. On that note, I, I do find it difficult to focus at times and I often find myself reflecting on conversations that I have or, or discussions with groups of friends or family or whatever and I, I wish I said this or I wish I focused on 
that other point that I've been thinking about so often, but I got caught up in the in the games or, you know, if it is a political discussion or a discussion on something a bit, with a bit of controversy to it, how do you find that you focus in, in your day-to-day? What, what, do you have a, a way to um, – you're going into a meeting or you've got a lot of work that you've got to get done in a set amount of time. What is your practice to, to bring yourself back to that focus if you've got one? I, if I sound like I'm hesitating, I think it's because I would not say I'm skilled at that as a general rule. Mm. Uh, on the flip side, I think one of my skills is uh, I'm quite good at taking on quite a lot of information and, and being able to discard bits. I'm very good at focusing at certain moments, which is why I'm quite deadline-driven. Mm. I, For anyone who's out there listening, and between you and me, um, I would not look to me as a, for guidance on how to deal with the uh, overwhelming volumes of information and, and, and focus. That said, the final thing I'd say on some one thought I have on it is I'm really good at turning my phone off. So I always turn my phone off for at least an hour or two before I go to bed. Um, I make a point of not looking at it first thing in the morning. That's um, why you never get my texts late at night. They're not very appropriate. Are they? <laughs> It's probably best you don't respond in real time. <laughs> no, no, that's um, that is a, that is a skill. That is something that I've learned. I've I've got a book next to my bed, and phone stays away yeah. from arm's reach. You know, so that's. I actually genuinely, yeah. uh, this made me sound. Uh, I don't know if it sounds strange, but I actually won't have my phone in my bedroom. All right, I, I like just to know it's yep. away. Yep, it's a good move. Uh, we're addicts to the to technology these days, so. It's a great move. Speaking of books next to my bed, Mm -hmm. I'm reading The Testaments Mm -hmm. by Margaret Atwood, which is the follow-up to The Handmaid's Tale. And we've discussed before that you haven't quite got through Margaret Atwood's back catalogue as yet. I'm working through it. But I do want to discuss something like dystopias and Mm -hmm. science fiction and not science fiction like Star Wars, like the – it seems like this science fiction space has changed from a – maybe not necessarily an optimistic one, but a really fantasy, wild, out-there vision to one of, you know, let's use some actual current-day technology and, yeah. and and ideas and what would happen if we something went wrong in this space? And and it seems like well, authors have become the new philosophers in this space in a way to to unpack these things, you know, whether it's pandemics or undemocratic societies or whatever it might be. Dystopias are the or at least my current favourite yeah. theme. So what, what are your ideas around that? There are a couple that immediately spring to mind. I mean, one is there is a trend, there has been a trend in art and literature of when things are quite dystopian in society, that dystopian novels also flourish. Uh, so we saw that around the time of the Second World War with George Orwell and so forth. We saw it in the 1970s and it's been a real resurgence recently. So I think, as is often the case, you know, life imitates art and vice versa. So so I think that's part of it. I think we are in a confronting time, uh, a time of amazing opportunity on the one hand. But even in the, uh, in the Italian Renaissance, when, you know, we look at talking of art, the, the, the profound benefits and... and uh, amazing legacy of that era that was still with us today but it was also a time of real conflict and confrontation and so for all of the tremendous increase in science and innovation and art and so forth there were all of those uh, challenges baked in so I think the fact that you're into dystopian things right now is because there's also a lot of it around it it's you know I guess it's that zeitgeist type thing the other thing I'd just quickly say is the role of artists and sometimes they actually for all the science and so forth you know just to your point earlier are sometimes better at predicting the future or at least kind of painting a picture of it uh, than people who maybe are thought of as more rigorous more scientific or whatever my one of my examples of that is a couple of years ago the french military ran a bunch of future of future setting exercises using artists and so forth because they actually look and, and realise that artists and, as you say, science fiction writers and so forth had been much better at predicting what might happen in the world than all of the military planners and so forth. 
Wow. Yeah, that is absolutely interesting. And I, I think hearing this often with climate scientists looking to, you know, we've we've put everything on the table now and people still don't get it. So how can we do this? You know, the IPCC report is not enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we need a storyteller. And um, Don't Look Up was a good movie. Did you get to watch that on Netflix? No, I again, I'm still in my coming out of Melbourne lockdowns kind of not looking to be too dystopian right now. I think the other thing is so much of my career is framed around work in that space that sometimes I it takes me a bit of time to catch up. Yeah. So why don't you tell me about it? Look, without spoiling anything at all, it's just I found a, a great piece of art mm-hmm. in a really obvious way yeah. that outlines, you know, how I feel and how many people feel about the, the impending or the current yeah. crisis. We'll get um, Leonardo DiCaprio on for the next podcast. Yeah, I think it would be good. He's got a pretty a open busy. schedule, but we're quite busy, so we'll see if we can. We'll see if we can fit him in. Yeah. Um, but uh, dystopias and dystopian ideals, what I loved about what you said about the Italian Renaissance is that that time there were people coming up with the idea that God and, and the earth wasn't the centre of everything and the world's changing and they were being killed for it while bringing things to light, you know, mm. about the way that we should be viewing the world and going forward. And I think that's almost the case today with our so-called progressive ideals, once again, that there is a big backlash to that yeah. at the moment. And and that is almost like the um, uh, the Inquisitors, you know, the yeah, Inquisition. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, it was like the Inquisition. And, and, and bonfire of the vanities. Yeah, we've almost got that today, you know, with people yeah, yeah. attacking and, and, you know, really fighting back on certain issues around what I would consider progress uh, to a point where maybe people were once scared to even maybe admit certain things or said it in company and now it's just openly out there and, and accepted in certain, yeah like Florida, for example, or things like that, you know, with the governor there and, um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's I mean, and not that, not that um, we, I think, naturally look to the US a lot, but, I mean, we've got every bit of that going on here in Australia too. Uh, yep. And that's one of the things, reasons that I think the role of comedy is so important. Mm. Uh, I think that comedians are quite apart from the value uh, and fun which is part of the value uh, of laughing and and comedy but I think they do a great job of not everyone obviously but some comedians do such a great job of really taking a look at the complexity of the world you spoke about the need for storytellers Mm. turning something that making it recognizable making it understandable and then partly through laughter but telling it in a way that is easy for people to accept and take on and maybe they their first thing is to laugh mm. but then when they leave the show or whatever maybe there's something that sits with them a bit more longer and i think that's what uh, fadi kasab did terrifically Fadi Kassab is a stand-up comedian based in Sydney, Australia. Although he entered comedy later in life, Fadi has certainly hit the ground running. As the 2019 winner of Triple J's Raw Comedy Competition, Fadi soon went on to perform at the Gilded Balloon, one of the largest and best-known venues at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, where he made the grand finals of the long-running So You Think You're Funny comedy competition. Fatty has performed at Melbourne, Adelaide and Sydney comedy festivals as well as writing and starring on ABC's Question Everything. As you will hear, Fatty really does question everything and he has every right to. Fatty was born in Lebanon and as a child had the horrific experience of having tanks roll past his house as Israel invaded. Fatty talks about this being the end of innocence for him and as we find out during the podcast, the trauma of living through 17 years of war not only inspires Fatty's comedy but really brings it to life. Along with stories of marriage, divorce, kids and the rising cost of living, Fatty incorporates a social and political commentary that is based on lived experience. He understands that the purpose of comedy is not simply to make you laugh, but to make you think as well. Raw, honest and opinionated, yet humble, mindful and kind, Fatty certainly made us think in this conversation. If you are based in Sydney, Fatty will be playing five shows at the Factory Theatre in Marrickville from Wednesday the 18th of May to Sunday the 22nd of May. Search Sydney Comedy Festival to buy your tickets. You can also follow Fatty on Instagram and Twitter at Fatty Kassab or on Facebook at The Fatty Kassab. 
Thank you for joining us on our brand new series of Moments of Clarity. You will have noticed our new artwork, music and co-host, but did you know we have a new website up and running as well? You can visit us there on moc-pod.com. On our website you will find our episodes and can subscribe via your favourite podcast platform. Please do. You can also read more about Moments of Clarity, Toby and myself on our About page. Furthermore, we want to have a much more interactive and engaging experience with you, our fantastic audience, and plan to do this via our new blog page where we post about everything and anything. We would love you to get involved by commenting on our blog posts, subscribing to our email list, or sending us an email via the website. We always reply. You can also follow us on Instagram at Moments of Clarity Podcast. It would be exceptionally helpful if you can spread the love and send our podcast to your friends, family and colleagues. We are so grateful to those of you who already have. Okay, enough about us. It is now time for us to bring you Fatty Kassab. Well, just to kick us off then, so we obviously have kind of done some research, which is how we we came came to you in the first place, Fatty. We loved uh, the way you positioned yourself and and how you were talking about your own life as it relates to comedy. But a lot of the people, I'm I'm afraid to say there will be one or two of our listeners who don't know you. And and so do you want to just give us a bit of background about how you got to doing what you do and and your journey to, to Australia and so on? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I came to Australia when I was 24 years old. I grew up in the Lebanese war. I had 17 years of it. It always comes up. I sometimes feel like, do I talk about the war too much? What else am I going to talk about? (laughs) McDonald's? You know what I mean? You know, so stuff like that triggered that we all leave. My my grade, my older brother, my younger brother, my sister stayed in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. But uh, we came here looking for this better life in Australia. came to study, came old enough to understand the conflict in the Middle East and the big players and the reasons behind it, and then went into advertising in Australia. I finished my degree and I was working in advertising for a very long time, uh, 15 or 16 years of that, and uh, online marketing. And ultimately, at the age of 41, I thought, I want to give stand-up comedy a try. I mean, I loved loved comedy uh, all my life. And I used to do an advertising presentation for Microsoft and all that. I, I worked in Germany for six years. Um, my ex-wife is German, so I like I got to see Europe a lot and move around Europe, and I got this view because I loved languages, and Europe was perfect for me. My father, may he rest in peace, he, he was a translator. He was Arabic, English, English, Arabic. So uh, he translated the classics like Huckleberry Finn, Legend of Sleepy Hollow, Moonfleet, all that from English to Arabic. And he used to sit and with me and my brother's sister and say, hey, help me translate a couple of pages when we were kids. You know, it's just war. There's no electricity. And we'd go and translate and help him. And, Amazing. And it was a joy. So language became a passion of mine. And so I ended up learning six, six languages. German was my sixth. Um, and living there and traveling around Europe and living in Munich, and I started doing a lot of presentations, like in the, as a creative director and then head of creative services of that company, getting on stage and doing like in front of 200, 300 people, audiences, I'm fine. Plus my experience, I, I used to work at SBS Radio as an Arabic newsreader and on air and interview people. All that kind of was like a perfect storm that when I started stand-up, it felt really comfortable. I had this life experience behind me and marriage and divorce and kids and travel and politics and and people, uh, my first year, were saying, how long have you been doing this? You must have been doing stand-up for years. I'm going, not really, no. It wasn't, I mean, stand-up was the small portion. It's the step, stepping up on stage. That was the step I took. But uh, I had so much pent-up stuff to say <laughs> for 41 years. So the material came thick and fast. So, yeah, so I uh, came to Australia in 2001, in uh, February, March 2001. So, yeah, I've been here 21 years now. Yeah, it's been quite a ride the last four years of stand-up, yeah. Absolutely, an incredible journey. I often hear someone like Jerry Seinfeld talking about how comedy is everything. You know, there's nothing else in the world except comedy. What sort of position do you come into this with? Like, I, I hear that, that comedy was just something, you know, you, you're in a room making people laugh, but I've I've seen what, I guess, something that's that's really scary or horrifying or or life-changing so you know walking into a room to try to make people laugh is is simply well, that what's what's you, your viewpoint on comedians or at least the jerry seinfeld view of comedy i, I agree 
I really, I mean, he was a big inspiration. I'm, uh, I'm a man in my 40s, so I grew up watching Seinfeld. You know, Seinfeld was the thing to, to watch and uh, still holds so well, holds up because really it's so well written. Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld, and now I've watched it so often, I can tell which lines were written by Larry David, which ones were written by Jerry. Larry is the cynical, comes in with the, and then there's a little light touch on top of a sentence or a joke, and you know that's Jerry's influence. Yeah. On it, because look at Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's just a very dark year. But Jerry Seinfeld also is the inspiration for me. While I decided not to swear when I started, he said um, swearing can be a bit of a shortcut, a bit of a cheat mm-hmm. to get a laugh, and uh, it's way harder without. And so true. And it, when you put constraints on yourself, suddenly comedy is better because you're working within limitations. If you have free reign, if any, if anything, if they go to the supermarket, buy me any food, it, it, you don't know what to do. But if I say buy me a specific range of something, uh, so constraints in comedy and Jerry says uh, talks about that. Yes, uh, comedy is therapy. Uh, I mean, Mark Twain once said, like I think the journey, the, the humor is supposed to take you to a very dark place mm-hmm. and then take you back out and take this. So take you to discomfort, and that's where the funny is. It's in the discomfort. It's in the trauma. That's why comedians tend to suspend trauma. Right? They go, so mom walked in on me and I was masturbating. Oh, no. And then people clap and laugh. And hopefully not like this, the joke. But <laughs> but they suspend it right there. Mm-hmm. They don't say, then I sat with my mother and we had a talk. No, no, no one continues <laughs> that. So the idea of comedy taking people to dark places, making them face demons that they know they had or they're avoiding, and then make fun of it at that very dark spot, just make it a bit lighter. It's great. And when, I mean, when I started comedy, it's my first six months, I remember going, oh, I'm so funny. And, hey, I'm killing it. You know what I mean? And it was a very egotistical approach to comedy. And um, until like uh, one night, this, this woman, uh, like she was a middle-aged woman, walked up to me and said, "You, I just want to say I had a really rough day and you made me laugh so hard today. And I went, oh, no, it's about them. <laughs> it's not about us, is it? So it was like, it's nice to have that in the beginning of a comedy journey, that the audience, sometimes you see comedians yelling at the audience. You go, come on, guys, this is a good joke. Why aren't you laughing? What's wrong with you? Well, no, it's always what's wrong with us. I mean, if we can't make them laugh, yeah. we wish that's our job up there, to bring this levity into their life. So comedy is everything. Um, I just write any weird thought comes in my head. I write a therapeutical, but uh, it's a very fine line. You don't want to use the stage as a group therapy session where you take people on this dark journey. My girlfriend left me, and then you stop right there. Mm-hmm. No, 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 say a joke, because that's your job. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you kind of, uh, you, you obviously mentioned your father with a degree of warmth, and I didn't know that he was a translator, but I, in a, and it's interesting, I sort of almost feel like the role of comedy is actually to translate as well. It's another translation job. How do you take that, as you say, that trauma and whatever, and make it accessible, make it understandable in a different way, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely correct. And I feel um, sometimes people don't pick up on little moments in life that are hilarious. Really, there are little moments we all face. And when you when you put a spotlight on that moment, it feels like someone has unpacked this thing that's been just sitting stored inside you. Oh, someone opened it up. Oh my God, that is so true. People usually laugh when they go, so true. You hear them saying so true, meaning Mm. their brain took your joke, unpacked it, related to it, and then they complimented themselves like, I am so smart for getting this joke. You know what I mean? And then they go, so true. I relate to that. It's little moments. I mean, I have one uh, joke where I say, um, before kids, I used to eat pistachio nuts. And if one of them was a little bit hard to open, i chuck it. That's how financially well off I was, okay? I would chuck a pistachio if I couldn't open it. After the first child, I was willing to break a nail to open it. And after the second, I was willing to chip a tooth because it's 22 bucks a kilo. And, and every time you have a child in Sydney, you're punished by 18 kilometers. So the city starts saying, no, you can't live by the beach anymore. You're a dad, so it starts kicking you inland and saying, meanwhile, I'm going, okay, the more kids I have, the more effort I want to put in pistachios. So people laugh so hard at the pistachio idea that uh, affluence is throwing a full one. So how do you live in the moment? How do you, well, first of all, did you get to comedy first and then decide I'm going to find these little moments and, and really focus on that? Or was this something you've done all your life, that you lived in the present and you found the 
well, typically mundane or, or maybe even the, the, the normal, you found some sort of um, gem in there? Initially, when I started the comedy, I, I mean, first of all, I had absorbed so much in my life. I would watch all the greats like George Carlin, right? And he was a be- beautiful writer, wonderful writer. And he says about himself that his comedy was horrible in the first years. That's what he says. I mean, for God's sake. If Carlin's saying that. And, and he said um, he used to think, what do people find funny? And that's writing from the front of his head. Because I used to write from the front of my head thinking, what do people find funny? And um, that's how I started my journey. Then he says he took drugs and LSD and all that, and it changed his perspective on life, pushed his comedy years in advance. And he goes, hold on, no, 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 no. What do I want to say? Mm-hmm. And when he asked himself that question, what is it that I want to say? He started writing from the back of his head, as he calls it. And because I had watched all this and seen all that, when I started comedy, immediately I started, what do I want to say? Right? It could be a little observation, a little pain point about the, how kids drain you financially. That's something I, that means something to me. Or uh, the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982, when I was standing in front of tanks and I just talk about sovereignty being just you know violated. No sanctions on, on Israel or something. You know what I mean? My Palestinian refugee sitting in Lebanon, three kilometers from my house. I lost my home because of a refugee kind of um, in clashes. 17 years I had to move away from it. So all these things, I go, what is it I want to say? I want to talk about these issues. I want to talk about everything I believe that, that resonates with people. Now, look at the Ukraine-Russia uh, uh, invasion of Ukraine. All the world is putting sanctions on Russia. Right? No one did that when Israel invaded Lebanon, for example. No one. So for me, it's not about, it's just there's a hypocrisy in the international community. Absolutely. When America invaded Iraq, did anyone put sanctions? They even admitted there were weapons, no weapons of mass destruction. So I want to talk about these issues. And I know it's heavy stuff. But if I don't talk about it, I feel like my, my friends, my Anglo-Saxon friend, comedian, say they can't talk about this stuff because it's an external observation and it won't ring so true. It'll seem like political commentary. Whereas if it comes from me, someone who's lived it, and I can talk about it, and this is what's happened in the region, I have a full understanding of it. I have more license and I believe a responsibility to, to talk about these things. So finding those moments, even like I, I wrote about a moment standing in front of a tank when I was a kid. And that was the reason I, I won raw comedy. It was a little story about a child in front of a tank. I was playing in the garden, suddenly tanks were in my house, in front of my house, and I'm standing there. And when you draw that juxtaposition between the child and, and war and I had I had security, stability. I, had, I was going to school, and after that, everything changed. My purity was taken away. So you, it's a yes, it's a little moment talking about a bigger geopolitical conflict. And it's interesting because as Matt introduced, sort of what moments of clarity is about. You know that we try to identify people who, one way or another, see a purpose to what they're doing and try to have a a bigger role than just the job itself, as it were. And, and I. I think in somewhere between buried and very explicit in what you just said then, Fadid, is this idea that the comedy is important and it's a way of communicating, but at your words, as I heard them, were you actually feel a responsibility to talk about these issues, to highlight the inequities and the perversities and so forth. And so is that may not mm-hmm. be, I'm sure it's not what you put at the, uh, the front of your flyers for your various shows, but maybe that is a deeper driver that, that sits there? Absolutely. And then, uh, for example, my current show is about uh, growing up in the war, losing my home when I was a child, moving to a new place, having addiction to sweet food as a way of coping, and then migrating to Australia and within months, September 11 happening, so I thought this is a new country and a new start. Suddenly I was pigeonholed and, oh, he's Middle Eastern. And then the Cronulla riots happened. And again, there was, and so I take all that in, all that in, all that in. Then I get married and I can't live where I want to live because my kids keep pushing me inland. You know, just having the kids and all that. After divorce, when I go to a date, I bring all that with me. All that back is the trauma. The war manifests in a date. And of course, it goes horribly. It's not going to go great today. But what I mean is, uh, it's that journey. So the subtext is there. Like I'm telling, ah, oh, my life story, but everything that's impacted me along the way, like, or what traumas we're all carrying, and we're all carrying it. And some people go, ah, oh, fatty. The one comedian said he said a couple of years ago, oh man, you lived through a war. That's great. 
for comedy. <laughs> for comedy. No, not for you, obviously. I wish I had lived through war. I go, yeah, well, yeah. But it's amazing. And they go, no, you have traumas of your own. Uh, maybe it could be parental. It could be uh, inequality. It could be social justice. It could be anything that you're passionate about. Just talk about that. It just happened that mine has a, there's a physical injustice and a social injustice kind of together uh, fueling my comedy kind of as a as an engine. But uh, I always try to put a light touch on top of everything because you know, life moves forward. It's an interesting one. I've been listening to some of your work that is available online and you know, both something that you have brought up, uh, you just mentioned it then, and also on a couple of the roast uh, kind of competitions that you did, uh, people were pretty <laughs> direct about the split with your wife. And, I mean, I guess maybe you gave license perhaps by by building it into your comedy yourself. I I don't know. But one of the, where I'm going with this, Fadi, is in terms of spousal relationships in comedy, we've just had... Uh, the whole sort of Chris Rock getting slapped by Will Smith following, you know, a, a joke that was, you know, I guess on the edge by the nature of, of jokes. And and so my question uh, is your reflections with this uh, on where there are limits or not. I get you. I, I hate that there's a precedent now that anyone can come up and slap us. Like, I, I, I'm freaking out now, man. This is not good. Now, I mean, anyone can slap me. I'll give them license if they get to win an Oscar right after. Other than that, just stay in your seat. That's what I believe. <laughs> um, I was uh, any jokes about uh, my ex-wife? Do you know that I write them? Uh, I was on Will Anderson's show, Question Everything, and uh, they were talking about the royal family always in the, the media, saying that Harry and Meghan, oh, they're divorcing, they're divorcing. They keep putting these fake articles, one issue after the other. And they said they're lying, and there's no punishment for them lying about there's no divorce. And I said a joke on, on the show on ABC, and I said, come on, <clears throat> in their defense, my wife knew we were divorcing a year before she told me. Okay? <laughs> that joke, I wrote it, and I passed it by her first. I said, I'm going to be saying this on TV. Yeah. She laughed. She goes, that's great. Like, we were very good friends. Mm. It's good that we remained very good friends. Um, we all, Everyone knew like we separated. People don't know details because I never talk about details of what happened to protect her. Not only that, I have children to protect me as well. You know, like I, I make fun of me, and that's always acceptable. But then to make fun of my ex-wife, all I say stuff like, uh, "I knew the marriage is ending because she got very happy suddenly," and I thought, "I don't make her happy. I'm not even trying to make her happy," <laughs> which is a joke on me. Okay, you're not even trying. Okay, no wonder she like no longer together. So this is the kind of jokes I make, and mainly because things can be taken out of context. My kids are now 9 and 11 years old, which is great for comedy, 9, 11, you know, my kids. <laughs> but do you think for the future, if they see a rec hear a recording of something where I am, it's like slander, you know what I mean? Just if it's a joke and if it's made up. So I, I like to protect the privacy of the family in that sense. And uh, roast, you know, there's no hold barred, as they say. People can go crazy in a roast. Uh, and my friend, uh, who's a cancer survivor, uh, he's a comedian, I was roasting him, and um, we were chatting before, it's like, what angles to take? He goes, oh, go hard on that I had cancer, man. Just go hard on it. I said, I don't know, man, my father, you know, passed a brain tumor and had cancer a couple of years ago, and it's very, he goes, no, no, Fatty, come on, it's hilarious, we're comedians here, come on, let's just do this. So I wrote a few jokes saying, you know, they say laughter is the best medicine, but when the doctor heard his act, he thought, okay, let's do chemotherapy instead, because this guy. <laughs> so and he's laughing in the roast, and people are laughing. And so when someone gives you license, they go to that sensitive area, talk about it, then that's okay. I, I try to talk about what I know. And, you know, some people tell me there are shows, like apparently in my venue, and one of the shows, another show was there, and someone was a, what's called trans-exclusionary radical feminist turf is the term they use. They said, you know, there's someone like that, and someone made another comment about Black Lives Matter. And I stopped and I went, okay, everyone, stop for a second. Everyone has a fight in this world. I can't carry everyone's fight. I have problems with the invasion of the Middle East. I have problems with the Palestinian refugees in my country, racism that I face in Australia. I have a lot of things on my plate. You know, when people say, do you want to come march with us on a Black Lives Matter march? I go, no, I don't have time. Like, I can't, have every, I can't hold every issue on my shoulders. I support you. Go for it, you know. But... There's a limit to what a person can advocate for and has almost kind of a, a right to advocate for. You know what I mean? I came here as a migrant. 
and I understand, like for me, Australia is, you know, if like, everything I wished for in Lebanon I could have is here is given to us. Some healthcare and education and all that. So for me, I've reached, this, oh, this is wonderful kind of thing I'm, I'm at. And But people who were born into this, they feel, oh, this is not enough. Look at the other countries where they give people more rights regarding this and that and that. For me, I've gotten more than I bargained for when I came to Australia, right? And I know as I progress and I see my kids grow here, I'm going to start leaning more towards these social issues and aligning more with them. But I have a mission at the moment just to speak everything, gets get that off my chest, everything I lived through. And I can't be in every cause, as they say. Uh, I hope it makes no, It does yeah. make a lot of sense, but it does make me wonder. So, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm now... Uh, a proud Australian, but I mean, I've been here for half the amount of time that you have, Fatty. Uh, and it's yeah. interesting just in terms of that idea that, you know, once it will get to a point where, you know, then I might have more space for to take on more causes or whatever. But I was wondering, because the flip side is, I actually wonder, one of my questions, I won't go as strong as critiques, but one of my questions about Australian society is I think that there are so many people who go, ah, I've now got everything I want, whether they've been here for five generations or whether they've been here 20 years or whatever. It is a generally benign, relatively easy place. Not that people don't have struggles, not that there are not challenges, but as a place to be, it's really quite a good quality of life. And I sometimes feel that People are quite apathetic here. Not everyone, mm. of course, but as a culture, maybe there are a lot of people going, whew, it's just quite nice. That's right. It's peaceful. It's, it's heaven for me. Uh, the way the, the natural reserves are kept, uh, the way nature is. I mean, there's so much pollution uh, when I grew up in Lebanon, especially because of the war and there's no you know, oversight, whatever it is. But here, just pristine Australia, I believe, is, is wonderful, of course. And I am sure as my kids grow up here, they will start seeing the, the injustices or what's lacking in the system, and that'll be their fight. Fatty, um, I've actually been going through this myself. I've got a 15-month-old and another on the way, a couple of months away. So I'm at the point of my life where... That's great. Yeah, yeah, I'm He's think- giving up pistachios. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't throw them on the floor because she just picks everything up and puts them in her mouth and, you know, we don't want her choking. So, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I know. Oh, years, yeah. How about the Christmas tree? I have to ask because we didn't decorate the bottom half of the Christmas tree when my kids started walking. They would reach everything and pull it out and we were afraid the tree would fall on them. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. I don't know if you put up a Christmas tree. No, no, we, did, we did. And, uh, yeah, yeah every, <laughs> everything was on the top half. Absolutely. Yeah, just, just <laughs> Fraction. Yeah, uh, so yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. We've just put those uh, straps on the on the cupboards and everything. So it's a good fun time, you know. But um, I, I mentioned this because you mentioned, you know, the the messages you want to to provide or the the life you want to provide for your children, so that they're able to take the next step that you have. And I was having this discussion actually with some friends, and and this goes into the piece about Australians that. Everyone was talking about, ah, look how great life is. You know, every generation, you know, my grandparents came here from Italy or wherever it was and and they had nothing but they came and they made X amount of money and they left a house to my parents and now they've got two houses which are going to be left to me and I've bought a house so that's three. And it's like this idea of how easy is life? I, all I've got to do is live life. <laughs> and I'm obviously yeah, I- putting myself in this middle class Melbourneian bubble here. But how easy is this life? And I, and I said, well, it's it's not for most people. It, it isn't that around the world on a global context. But even within Australia, there's so many people that are that are lacking. And how do we bridge this divide between not only the haves and haves not, but this attitudinal sort of divide that we have, where it's it's about me and my wealth or my lot and I feel like Australians do that because we've never we've never had to endure um, pain I'm talking about white middle-class Australian society not migrant society not Aboriginal society you know not not women or, or you know all the different people that haven't had it easy but you know I feel that there's this this lack of understanding that all of the great things we have need to be fought for and we need to dedicate our lives to protecting that stuff because it's not a given and we need to try to ensure that others have that here so they're not this inequality that ends up, you know, building up and taking everything, you know, away because they don't have it either. So I'm, I'm just, yeah, wondering what, what you feel about the role of, 
I guess, people that have this understanding in protecting our democracy, protecting our liberal values, protecting, you know, everything that we hold dear. I believe it's constant maintenance, isn't it? It's like a home. If you don't maintain it, it'll be dilapidated. Uh, you will, it's a garden. If it's not tend to, it'll just die. It'll overgrow. And and people just go, let's say you buy a house and it's all good. And you go, that's it. And you don't do anything with it. That's exactly that. It's the political system, the social justice system. All that is uh, requires maintenance. Uh, there's something about what you mentioned as well about the... There is a privilege on having, like, I don't have a home in Australia because it wasn't established for me here. I grew up, like, my great-grandfather used to own the entire village, the great-grandfather in the 1800s. Then my, they sold a lot of it, and that's our village became, um, like, you know, scattered. New people came in, and then became a village later on. But it used to be as olive groves. Mm-hmm. And we still have a lot of olive trees in Lebanon. I still have my grandfather's house and my parents' house standing there between the olive groves. And this is going to be for me and my kids, and I inherited you know, part of the house when my father passed away. And I keep thinking there's a legacy there that I haven't seen in Australia. Australia feels, uh, how do I put it, I don't want to seem um, offensive or anything, but people, if I can get a good deal on my house, I'm going to flip it and buy somewhere else and move. There's no, this is my great-grandfather's house, and this is my grandfather's house. This is my dad. It became my dad and my mom's, and then me, and the other passed on. And I feel it's kind of almost a testament to Australia as well that it just keeps moving so quickly forward. But sometimes I feel we should slow down and preserve even that. You know, uh, let's say Sydney siders, when the market went really hot, they sold and moved to Brisbane, moved to Queensland, all that. For them, there's no real attachment to where they're living because it's such a multicultural society, right? And there are bubbles of multiculturalism. I mean, what I mean is like I know there's a Lebanese area in Western Sydney. I know that most Lebanese people live there, the shops and all that, they tend to kind of stay in that area. Or um, so the Indian community and the Lebanese community and the Asian community don't mix usually too much. You know what I mean? What they do is we overlap in a lot of things, like at work and uh, transport and all that. But as a living, people tend to, they're grouping, isn't that what it's called? I think there's an actual theory behind grouping from swarms of bees to, so we tend to group. Uh, but because, like, I came here 20 years ago, if I can buy a house now that'll be for me a permanent home, oh man, I don't think I would sell it. I wouldn't. Like, it's kind of ingrained in me. Because what will money give me? And I look, I was raised very Catholic. I mean, it's a very Catholic man. Paddy means Jesus. I was born two days after Christmas. So for me, like, my parents put that on my shoulders. And they, uh, you know, and in, in the Bible, with the, there's this line that Jesus said, What use is it if you gain the entire world and you lose yourself? Right? There's that line. Now, it doesn't even have to be a believer to kind of relate to that. I'm sure someone's using it as an Instagram quote uh, for, you know, for them doing yoga or something. But the idea of constant see- constantly seeking wealth as its own reward, I think that's making very people unhappy. You know? And also constantly seeking affirmation from others. I had one of the worst comedy shows of my life. It's that technically people were late, rain, demonstrations. And I'm sure my review will be horrible. Now I'm thinking, if that is what my aim is, that I'm seeking that as an affirmation, I'm going to have a miserable day today. But if I'm thinking of this more of as a very long journey, it's going to have ups and downs, comedy, and going to have great shows and bad shows, and good audience, uh, then I would be more at peace. Because happiness doesn't last, and sadness doesn't last, really. If you get attached to all that uh, as, a, as a goal, and that hit me when I was 42 or something after my separation. I started centering myself more into being in a peaceful, content place. Like I wanted, really wanted to buy property, really, really. And the market's getting out of reach and I was stressed. And then I kind of ooh, took a breath after a few years. I went, that's okay. That's okay. I mean, I don't have to get that as, as my ultimate, what? I mean, the loan is my ultimate goal. Is the bank loan my ultimate goal? Is that it? One and a half million for an apartment in Sydney or something like there's no real value for me, you know? I know that I'm not going to get invaded and someone's going to take it away from me. That's all I could feel. Like, that's the safety in Australia. It's interesting. One of the themes that came out of Matt's kind of first 50 episodes of Moments of Clarity was that there were a lot of people who seemingly were not terribly spiritual. They were doing what they were doing for whatever good motivation but but there wasn't a religious or spiritual element to it and in the same way i'm not sure 
that you present your comedy as a spiritual thing. But it was just interesting then whether or not mm. you're practicing Catholic or just Catholic by upbringing. I, yeah, I used to be a church choir for like seven years, right? Yeah. I was. Uh, and like in Australia, I don't, uh, I don't go much, especially the pandemic, everything shut down and you know, churches and all that. I try to give my kids a spiritual life because there's, I find a big difference between spirituality and religion. Yeah. Uh, I think my brother's favorite story is that the God and the devil are walking down the street and God says, points and says, hey, look, the truth. And the devil says, give it to me, I'll organize it. Mm. Right? And it's a very good story. It's like, but the devil is our dark side. The God is our light side. You know what I mean? And I, I read works of atheists. I read work like Spinoza, who believed like God isn't out there in nature, but rather nature is in God and it is God. Kind of, a, how did I put it? He never believed in the personal God like Einstein. Uh, never believed someone says, don't do this and don't lean your foot on the church wall. That's blasphemy and sacrilege. But uh, he believed more that, um, you know, like Ricky Gervais is a famous atheist, a very famous, talks about it all the time whenever he can. And he goes, he believes in science. And I've reached a stage in my life where the culmination of everything for me is like, yes, there is science and star systems and galaxies, but I believe all of it has a soul. That's where I am in my journey. And that, for me, made me very peaceful. Like everything has a soul, the plants and and the, the trees, the elements, um, music has a soul, you know? Mm-hmm. So for me, and that's why it moves us so well, and the sound and vibration, and it became, a, it's amazing. I mean, if you think of Fatty 25 years ago, I, I, I would have laughed at myself, like how cynical it is. But comedy for me became that. It has to be soulful to be healing. Like, really, comedy can heal, can make people laugh so hard, they forget everything. It gives this energy. I did a show, the ABC Comedy Bites on Monday here in Melbourne, and it was 850 people. And they were laughing all like the theater was shaking. The comedian was telling me it's amazing, huh? And like how the theater is shaking from laughter. And just like a three minute set for each each one of us. And you go, Yeah, you feel it. And then you have a buzz for a day from it. It's just you feel your soul has been fed. So spirituality in that sense, yes, I think people try to label it as well. Like well, what kind of spiritual person are you? Are you more Buddhist, you know, Christian, Muslim? Mm. No, it's, it has no label. You know, it's, the more you grow, if you feel it's the uh, you're part of everything. And maybe it's our job to kind of add this positive energy or vibration to the universe and try the best we can. I've gone really deep, haven't I, in this uh well, we do kind past, of, but... That's kind of... That's the point, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> slowly, slowly, slowly bring you in. You know, you don't know that you're there, but you're, you're, you're in the muck with us. Well, <laughs> well done. <laughs> From the outside, it seems to me one of the great tragedies of the Middle East is how interconnected people were socially across, uh, you know, across religions for centuries. Yes, of course, tensions and uh, back and forth of violence from time to time, but without the same kind of segregation and so forth that one sees. That was intentional, the segregation. It's been planned for decades. It was fueled and fed by foreign entities in the Middle East. It is in their best interest that Sunnis and Shia Muslims fight each other. And they come in to keep the peace and control the oil. And this is the biggest tragedy in the Middle East is that we have natural resources that the whole world wants it. And um, how we are, I I don't know if you've been following the news and seeing BBC and seeing NBC in America and saying about Ukraine, these people are not your typical refugees. They are just like us, they're saying. Mm. So we are supposed to be the typical refugees, right? I made a joke about this in Adelaide, and I said, don't worry too much about Ukraine and Russia. This is not a real war. Uh, and split the room. And I said, the reason you know it's not a real war is that petrol is $2 a liter. Look when they bomb us. It was 80 cents. That's a war. That's how you do a war. Yeah. Don't bomb Southern Hemisphere. Bomb Southern Hemisphere. No one wants to see blonde refugees. This is our thing. They can't take it away from us. We're the refugees. And I really dived into it because it really upset me how it was being reported. And they're going, these people are coming in. They're educated. They have iPhones. And we're not educated. You know what I mean? So we've been labeled that. Of course, one of the biggest tragedies 
is that Israel and Palestine cannot coexist in the Middle East. And for the last 50 years, 60 years, Israel has been taking bits, 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 bulldozing people's homes, been there for hundreds of years. And Palestinians have a saying that when Israel took Palestine, they took it furnished. Mm -hmm. That's what they say. It already had an airport, had hospitals, and they came in and just took a country. They renamed it the airport. Now it's Israeli airport. You know what I mean? So... And you can't blame the, the normal, the person, the Israeli person, Israeli citizen. But what is their fault? There's a system, systemic government policy that is making some people, there's a state of apartheid, as the Amnesty International called Israel this year, the 2021. They, uh, of course, they were outraged. How could you call us that? But you have two million people in a prison, an open-air prison in Gaza and the West Bank. And you see all that happening, and the media does not mention it. Look, take Russia. They applied to be part of NATO uh, years ago, and they were rejected. And they were promised after the fall of the Soviet Union, no countries will be added to the NATO bloc. And one by one, they're adding countries, and they're refusing that they join them. I feel uh, what's happening is murderous. It is a war, and no one should should ever experience this, really. But when you look at the, the systemic pushing Russia into a corner, and that resulted in tragedy, instead of being open. Actually being open, say, there is no threat. Let's collaborate from China. But they see China as a, tra- as a threat, for example. China is a threat to the West. Is it? China is doing it very subtly, for example. China uh, goes to African countries, hey, I'm going to build a port for you. Uh, I know you don't have the money. Look, it's going to be like a couple hundred million dollars. You can pay us back for it. And if you can't, we'll control the port for the next 50 years. Okay? And the countries can't pay it back. So China is controlling ports in Africa and airports and infrastructure, you know, and highways. And they're doing this cultural colonization, in a way, through a system. Without war, America's policy, my grandma died when she was 96 years old or so. And she said, remember, 30 years ago, she goes, Fadi, America needs war every 10 years. That's what she said at the time. And I go, oh, what's she talking about? I have no idea what she's talking about. And then you witness it from, you know, World War and Vietnam. I, I went to the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney, and they had the communication from the Australian uh, Navy warning the U.S. There's actual transcript saying there's a fleet coming to you, Pearl Harbor. There's a Japanese fleet coming towards you. And the Americans ignored the communication. It's in the museum in Sydney. Ignored it so they can have an excuse to enter a war. And is it the American people? No. So you have to, there's always a distinction. Like if I criticize a government policy or it's not the people. And when you see the world, the Middle East, what's happened to us, when Israel was given back, say, okay, this was their land a thousand years ago. Okay, so they have a right to claim Palestine. You go, okay, fine, I agree. Then in that sense, Russia has a right to claim all these states she took from. You know what I mean? And it wasn't a thousand years ago. This was 50 years ago that there were states in the Soviet Union. So what is this? What do we allow and what do we not allow? When is it that people are crossing a line? And I know it's now it's a social and political commentary that I'm saying, but for me, this is what comedy should be about. I should discuss these issues and bring levity, unlike now, but I will bring levity in the show. You write and you talk about these issues so people understand that there is discrimination that was built into a system, really, and it, it was. And in Australia, you see it, of course. You see the disparity where some people get some rights more than others and some don't who have been historically marginalized. Uh, and it's interesting, I would imagine, and again, I have no data for this, but my instinct is there would be a number of people in Australia who would be quite sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, but think that the Australian Aboriginal cause is is irrelevant. And I think because some people, it's interesting, we always think that other people do bad things. Uh, and that's what I oh, mean. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I, I personally believe there is a strong... <laughs> no, no, that's a great line. Other people do bad things is a great line, really. I'm, I must commend you. That's really good, actually. No. Yeah, we don't look too close to home, what's happening. We raise the social cause. Like America, Australia, I find so many of my Aussie, Aussie Anglo friends, if you want to call them that, are obsessed with American politics and the American elections and Bernie Sanders. And, you know, they were so pro. Come on, and they put it on Facebook to go, come on, everyone, we should support Bernie. Uh, how do you, I'm, I mean, I'm a Lebanese, Australian. What do you want me to do? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and go look closer to home. What's happening here with, with the Great Barrier Reef, with giving mining companies rights to dredge the reef and all that? Why don't you look at that first? I'm a, I'm a teacher, so my role as a teacher yeah. is to 
we're talking about fast fashion right now and, and the supply chain and, and, you know, who the slave labour that's basically going on in the garment industry but also the, the environmental devastation. And, and how do you bring this to children without just depressing them and saying, well, we're all screwed, you know, what's the point? Like I can't even go to the shops and, and buy a piece of clothing now. Like, you know, you told me plastic was wrong, yeah. you told me this was wrong and now, you know, I can't even buy clothes. So, but... But we have to sort of bring in a solution mindset or a, you know, a positive way to go about our existence. And I think the T-shirt idea of, you know, other people are doing it or whatever it might be, other people are bad. We need to wear the T-shirt almost, I'm bad but I'm willing to make a difference or something, you know, like... Yeah, um, you know what, I, I believe as well it's a very delicate thing because there's a lot of guilt being thrown on us as individuals. And um, in a way I would say we're not bad. Mm. We're definitely not. Steve Hughes had a joke because they're bombing, they're testing nuclear devices under the under the ocean. They're polluting. They are jet setting everywhere. And I'm standing in the supermarket with a bag for life. For me, I'm I have my reusable bag. I'm gonna make the difference. Mm -hmm. And it's a great line from him. Yeah. And you go, uh, yeah. You know what? They're putting a lot of guilt. Like, oh come on, Earth Hour now. Come on, everyone, turn off your lights. We need to save. Well, no, I am an individual. What I can do is affect my community and the immediate circle around me. And this is my power. And if the circle grows enough and I create this wave, I can create, uh, make transformation on a local government level. And from that, it's state level and then legislative, right? That's what I believe we can teach the children, that you can start really small and create this ripple effect and, and that they are not bad. They are born into, this is their challenge for their life. We all have challenges. Every generation has one. And if we just say that, like, I, I mean, I, when I chat with my daughter and all that, she said, my, someone's telling me plastic is bad, that you shouldn't drink from it. She's worried. Mm. I said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You can, if you have the choice, drink from glass. If you don't drink from plastic, it's okay. Okay, make sure you recycle it. Because why should she feel guilt about drinking from plastic and worry about her health? That should be a more of a legislative level. Okay, if it's really bad, then it, we can't control that. And there's one comedian saying Leonardo DiCaprio comes out and goes, oh, everyone, the sharks, they're being culled by the millions. We need to stop this. I go, okay. Uh, <laughs> I promise not to kill a shark if I see him. What do you want me to do? <laughs> what do you want me to do? So I'm putting a lot of pressure on us as individuals saying it is your responsibility to get equality for this group or get this pollution problem sorted or, or, or. So in the end, you can only affect your immediate community in the beginning is it is it offsetting i guess are they offsetting the issues that they're creating the 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 big bad you know corporations or whoever it might be and putting it on us to make individual choices or is there something in that to say yes we can only do what we you know our bit we can make our you know street or our our little community free from rubbish or you know put a sign that says refugees are welcome here or whatever it is but that's it? Or is it a point where you realise that you, you attempt that, but then we need, do we, do we need to infiltrate these, these corporations and places? Do we need to, to uh, communicate? What, what is our power? What is our real power? I think it's an incredibly complex system. If you think right now, I'm going to take on the government, it's in, almost impossible as an idea to, to, to affect change. It is. Because you've set yourself this massive goal with very limited tools. Not only that, limited knowledge of how the system works. I don't know exactly how the system works. I know there's a lot of uh, interconnected, intricate systems that work together. Bribery, corruption, all that stuff is there. And now you can't control everyone. You don't know what's happening under the table. So what you can do is start, if you said, as you said, it start with your own street. And then you set that as an example and as a model to be followed. And that just creates inspiration, and I, I believe inspiration is very powerful. And, and it doesn't, the, the answer clearly doesn't need to be yes, Fadi, but I'm just wondering if we kind of go back, it's not quite to the beginning, but in all of this, why pursue life as a comedian? It's not the easiest career, hopefully it's rewarding, but it, it is part of this understanding that circle of influence. How do you go beyond exactly. the it's street? About, How do you mm -hmm. reach... That's right. And uh, comedy, when you start talking, uh, Carlin once said, we are the jester in the king's court. We're the lowest. We should be the lowest. And uh, the jester makes fun of himself so much. People go, look at me. I'm nobody. I'm nobody. I'm a nobody. But guess what? You're, you're nobody too. 
your majesty. And he goes, he can make fun of the king and, and everyone. And because he is the jester, people laugh because he's what's called punching up in comedy. And the jester in the court can affect change in the court. It can change the mindset of the king. If you think about it, the, the cabinet, if you create that social issue that you can raise awareness about through comedy, that could really have an effect. Like some people hear a line that you said, and it just hits home with them. It really hits something and they go, wow, I need to change my life in that respect. Mm-hmm. And it's a joke. It's, it's, a, it's nothing. I mean, I know I have, um, what was it? It was like, I was talking once about uh, how I loved um, watching American movies. Mm-hmm. I used to love them when I was a kid in Lebanon because they're always saving the world. They go from us usually. We were the bad guys. And America does change villain, villains every 10 years. And that was my grandma's influence. But I go, yeah, they, they would start with the Nazis and that was the Russians and that was the Arabs. You know, that's the movies. We are the villains, right? And I could say I love big American productions. That's why I was such a fan of the Middle East War. <laughs> I go, production value through our roof was fantastic. And that's levity, mm-hmm. production value through our roof. But it's saying, oh, crap, yeah, they do keep bombing the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Maybe when there's another war coming up, maybe I should go down the street and say the government, don't, don't interfere, don't take part in this war. And it's just like incepting people at a small level, you know. And that's the job of a comedian, just say a little bit of something that could possibly affect change. I don't know. I mean, anything we say, maybe someone on the train can influence change. It doesn't have to be on, on stage. But, you know, hopefully if you grow outside your little sphere of influence, you have a bigger one and you're doing a big shows and maybe have a special, then your voice can carry more and your dent in this world can be a bit bigger, you know, the mark you leave. We are in uh, Melbourne International Comedy Festival fortnight, I guess, or, or month. Are you excited to see any other comedians? Who Are you going to go and see a few shows? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I will go see uh, Sammy Shah. Uh, I would love to see him. Um, and uh, one of the best as well, Ivan Aristegueta. He is a great comedian. Fantastic. I think he was uh, nominated, I think, for Best Show last year. Uh, Geraldine Hickey, who uh, gave me really good advice back in Adelaide about my show. I would love to see her. Uh, whenever I get a chance to see Celia Pakula as well, I'm a big, big fan, like a really big fan of hers. So there are a lot of people. I think... Uh, if anyone's listening to this, I would say there are really big names that we all know and uh, they've been doing comedy for years, but try to go see the, the unknown ones, the people who are just starting. And it's a good chance to see them in a room with 10 people or 20 people because in a couple of years they'll be doing, who knows, stadiums maybe. You don't know. And it's good that they receive support. Brave this pandemic. Uh, thankfully, the pandemic finished when the war started. So it's, it's good. There's no more pandemic, uh, as far as the news is concerned. And uh, put on this brave face and just wear some masks if you feel safe and just sit in the show. We'd love to see you there. Thani, that's beautiful. I'm going to ask you a final question. I'm conscious of your time. But there's obviously a moment in your life, you know, you've been a successful marketing executive, you've transitioned countries, you've made big decisions at many points. But at some point you decided, I'm going to put all this together and I'm going to make my own transition to become a comedian. And the question that we always end up asking at some point in these shows are, in that decision, what was your moment of clarity? When did it come together and you say, this is the thing? You mean to decide to start stand-up comedy? Because, look, we decide to do a lot of things every day, right? But uh, also, I was a man, I was 41, and I thought, uh, we, we always have this idea that we are meant to do something, yeah? I mean, Bill Bryson, in his book, A Short History of Nearly Everything, at the end, he talks about humans and evolution, and we, uh, we always think uh, life should have meaning. But what is the meaning of life? He goes, after everything you've seen and read, Life doesn't necessarily have meaning, but it has purpose. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of life is to perpetuate life, is just to keep going. And he says, if you tell me I have to live my life as a lichen or the little furry growth in a forest on a stone, I probably lose the will to live. But the most doesn't. It's just so happy to have every little extra moment of existence. They're just happy. So for me, the clarity is like this meaning. What is the meaning of my life? What is the meaning for me? 
I struggled with that for many years. And when I started stand-up, the first time I went on stage and said a few things that resonated, I felt I found my purpose. Mm-hmm. And really, I do have a purpose. Sometimes it gives me meaning. Sometimes it gives me a big heart and headache, you know, comedy. But my purpose is to bring a smile to people, make them happy for a little moment. You know how when you tell someone a joke, you know a joke for what, decades probably. Since you were a kid, there's a joke you like. Mm-hmm. And every time you think about it, it changes your mood. And this is the power of comedy. And for me, the, this is such a big responsibility to give people a little thing, a little souvenir from you that can carry for the rest of their life. And for me, uh, it was when, you know, when people say, you, you made my day or you changed it. And, uh, for me, that is always a reminder. So that's my moment of clarity, really, that uh, okay, we're, there, we're here to shine a little bright light in people's lives. And uh, hey, if we can, um, maybe I'll leave you Carlin's uh, commentary he said when when the writer says something funny and it's well written, you go, oh, wasn't that a beautiful uh, observation? Beautiful. And if he packages it nicely, he goes, oh, isn't, wasn't that beautifully written? So he becomes a bit of a poet. And if that beautifully written piece has an underlying meaning, he becomes a philosopher, right? And he goes, so that is what we should aim for in comedy. And uh, you can tell I'm a big fan of George Carlin, but um, and he really is a guide for anyone doing comedy. So, yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you, Fanny. Yeah, incredible. Thanks so much for your insights, and um, yeah, you're your brilliant, actually. Um, and for your philosophy, where, where can people find out more about you, whether online or where can we go see you? My show is called "Is This Legal." My Instagram and Facebook. Or just look up Sadi Kassab. They will find me. It's F A D Y. K-A-S-S-A-B. So you'll find me. It's at Fadi Kassab. Twitter, I don't use it much because it's the cesspool of hate. So I try to stay away from it. But it is at Fadi Kassab there. And the Facebook is the, the Fadi Kassab. And they can follow me there and on YouTube as well. I don't put much on YouTube, but I should start doing it more. And uh, I announce all my shows there and what's happening and where they can come see me and where the tickets are available. So if you look up Is This Legal, the Melbourne Comedy Festival, I'm also a part of the Sydney Comedy Festival from May 18 to 22. I have five shows and it's the same show. Is this legal? So I'd love to see people come. Brilliant. Thank you.